Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bazaar, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Today, we bask in the light of mustachioed greatness. Hi, this is Daniel Segura, host of the Mustachioed Podcastio. You like mustaches? You like movies? You like sexy chicanos? Well, the Podcastio is the place for you. We are talking legendary mustaches from Charles Bronson to the Great Bird Reynolds to the OG Ice-T. Find the Mustachioed Podcastio anywhere you listen to podcasts. That is M-O-U-S-T-A-S-H-I-O-D Podcastio. Alrighty, Mom, what story are you going to be telling us about today? I am going to be telling you about Constance Navarro, who went by the name Connie, and her son, who became a famous musician. Mm, okay. Okay. I'm going to be talking about be? the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Oh, cool. I yes. was wondering what it was going to be because um, because of your drink. Yes, my drink is called the French-Canadian Martini. And the recipe I'm looking at looks like a shot based on the yeah. amount of alcohol in there. So I took it as Agreed. a shot. I'm not, I'm not going to just sip this because it sounds fucking gross. It it's one ounce easy. of Canadian rye, which is whiskey, if you don't know that already. Yeah. And a half ounce of Grand Marnier. So that sounds like dimensions of a shot for me. That I would agree. I was trying to anything, figure out how to make it into a martini, which is that little yeah, amount of alcohol. Anything less than two ounces is basically a shot. So I'm, I made I mine so. into a shot. Yeah. I'm going to try it okay. right now. Are we ready? Oh, nope. Not yeah, a fan. Not. Mm. Nope. Ooh, that, that hit the Came bottom of my stomach like a fucking dumbbell. That's <laughs> <laughs> gross. Yeah, not good. I wouldn't recommend this one. No, no. I mean, I guess if you really like whiskey, that's one thing. But... I didn't use good whiskey, though. I I just have, like, cheap whiskey for making, like, whiskey and cranberry juice cocktails. I don't yeah, have a it's... good shooting whiskey at my house. It's kind of, that was gross. I'm also not the whiskey aficionado, so I can't tell the difference between Canadian rye whiskey or any other kind of, I don't know. It all tastes like rocket fuel to me, so, yeah. yeah. I don't have a discerning palate for whiskey, so. I I do, but I can't afford to be buying, like, the whiskey I want to buy, like, $50, $60 bottles all the time. Yeah, so that's true. I just buy true. 
shitty mixing whiskey. It's all right, because you're mixing it, so. Yeah. All right, let's talk about this UFO. Yes. Shag Harbor is a small fishing community in Nova Scotia that harbors about 400 to 450 people. However, something very strange took place there. As an Air Canada plane was flying over Shag Harbor, the co-pilot of the plane noticed something strange. Out of the left window of the plane, a large rectangular object can be seen tracking them from about a mile or so out. It was described like as a brilliantly lit rectangular object with a string of lights following it closely behind. So, big rectangle with a bunch of like, like a string of lights behind it. Oh, behind it. I'm imagining like a yeah. tampon flying through the sky. <laughs> okay. That's not what I thought you would say. I wouldn't have never guessed that you would say that, but okay. I I'm I'm great visual. Like like a rec like a skinny rectangle with a trail of lights like a string behind it. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay. Makes sense now. <laughs> so about four minutes after the pilots noticed this small object, a small explosion came from the area the object was in. And oh. a couple minutes after that, a second explosion happened. But it was like like a bright explosion, and then it turned into a blue cloud. That was kind so of like an explosion in the sky? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I don't like object, that sound. Object like exploded and turned into like the a blue cloud. Is... Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. I don't like that. That same night, Daryl Dory and her sister Annette and his mother were sitting on the front porch in Mahone Bay where they noticed a large object maneuvering above the southwestern horizon. The next day, he wrote a letter to the RCAF Greenwood base, which is the Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, he was he wrote to the commander asking what was flying over the water that evening because he had never seen anything like it. Hmm. Similarly, Captain Lee Howard Mercy had some strange experiences that night. Captain Leo ran a sizable fishing boat near Shag Harbor and noticed something weird on his radar. Four stationary blips were shown on his radar, and as he looked out the window, he noticed four super bright lights hovering in a rectangular pattern about 17 miles away from his boat. Leo wasn't the only one to see this. In fact, all 20 of his crewmen saw it as well. So he had a big-ass boat with 20 mm -hmm. other people on it, and everyone on the boat saw it. Captain Leo radioed the Rescue Coordination Center and the Harbor Master in Halifax, asking for an explanation. He also filed a report with the Lutenberg RCMP outlining his sighting uh, when they returned to the port after they were done fishing. 
on the night of October 4th, 1967, at about 12 p.m. Uh, Atlantic Daylight Time, it was reported that something had crashed into the waters of Shag Harbor. At least 11 people mm -hmm. saw a low-flying lit object head towards the harbor. Multiple witnesses reported hearing a whistling sound, kind of like a bomb. Like the old school Ooh. bombs, like... Yeah. Like some, Ooh. it sounded like a whistling sound. That's and then scary. a whoosh. Finally, a loud bang. The object was never officially identified and therefore was referred to as an unidentified flying object in the Government of Canada documents. Canadian military became involved in a subsequent rescue slash recovery effort. The initial report was made by a local resident, Lori Wickens, and four of his friends. They were driving through Shag Harbor on Highway 3 when they spotted a large object descending into the waters off the harbor. Attending a better vantage point, Wickens and his friends saw an object floating about 250 to 300 meters offshore in the waters of Shag Harbor. Wickens contacted the RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage and reported he had seen a large airplane or small airliner crash into the waters off of the harbor. Because he didn't really know what he saw. He just saw something crash into the water. Right. Well, th 11 other people saw an object hovering over that night. So. Did they, like, did they give a description of the shape of the object that crashed? Rectangular. Rectangular. Okay. Yeah. About 15 minutes after the crash, two RCMP officers arrived at the scene. The object quickly sank into the water in the officer's car called the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax to advise them of the situation and ask if any aircrafts were missing. A rescue mission was quickly assembled within half an hour of the crash. Several local fishing boats went out to the crash site in the waters of the Gulf of Maine off of Shag Harbor to look for survivors. No survivors, bodies, or debris were taken, either by the fishermen or by the Canadian Coast Guard. Uh, Did they find the, the rectangle? Morning, no. They didn't find anything. Found nothing. Nothing. Weird. By the next morning, uh, the... Canadian, the Rescue Coordination Center had determined that no aircrafts had ever gone missing that night. While uh, tasked with the shirts, the captain of the Canadian Coast Guard cutter received a radio message from the Rescue Co Coordination Center that all commercial, private, and military aircrafts were accounted for along the eastern coast. Mm. All the way from the top of Canada down to the States, every single plane was accounted for okay the same morning the rescue coordination center also sent a priority message to the air desk at the air force headquarters in ottawa which handled all civilian and military ufo sightings informing of, of the crash that all conventional explanations such as aircrafts flares etc had been dismissed therefore this was labeled a ufo report the head of the air desk sent them another priority text to the Navy headquarters concerning the UFO report and recommended an underwater search be mounted. The Navy, in turn, sent another priority message tasking 
Fleet Driving Unit Atlantic with carrying out the search. Two days after the incident had been observed, a detachment of the Navy divers from the fleet diving unit was assembled, and for the next three days they combed the seafloor of the Gulf of Maine, right off Shag Harbor, looking for an object. The final report said no trace of an object was found. Oh. Yeah. Weird. So, multiple people saw this thing explode. They saw it hovering over the harbor, and they saw it crash into the harbor. So they saw it floating in the harbor. Nothing was found. Hovering and then crash into the water, and then they went looking for it, and it's gone. So I, what they saw first was that the first sighting was in the flight, the flight 305. Right. And they saw the thing out the of the tampon. Left. Yeah. They With saw the lighted it. string. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I actually no, I think that was the second sighting. I think first sighting okay. was the fisherman who saw it off the shore. And then second sighting was the plane one where they saw it explode. Third sighting was people saw something flying through the air, like and then crash. Mm-hmm. And then someone saw it floating in the harbor. The harbor. Oh. So strange. At least, at least 30 witnesses of this thing, if not 40. Wow. That's a lot of people to not find anything when it crashed. Parties, like 20 people on the fishing boat, 11 people in town saw it crashing through the sky like after got hit there was the two pilots and whoever was looking out the windows of the plane probably but wow spooky super weird yeah I don't like it What's your story about? Are you ready for my story? My brutal story? Let's get into it. Okay. Yep. Let's kick it off. So how far, how far reaching does a murder go? You know, how many people does it affect? How does it affect them? This story that I'm going to tell you is going to talk about some initial repercussions and then some longer lasting ones. It's a strong argument that one of the major players in this story might not have had the life he had if the murder hadn't occurred, which completely makes sense that, you know, everything that happens in our life makes us who we are, whether it's good, bad, or the other. But uh, this one is definitely not just like somebody that, you know, became a dentist or something, you know. Constance Navarro, maiden name Hopkins, was born on October 12, 1941 in Detroit, Michigan. Most people called her Connie, and she had two sisters. She grew up for a period of time in California and went to 
a college prep school for a year. After graduating school, she started working as a model, even appearing on The Price is Right TV show, as well as other advertising opportunities. She married James Raul Navarro, who goes by Mike. The couple had a son on June 7, 1967, and they named him David. Some people might recognize his, the son's name, Dave Navarro. He later became a famous musician, um, but let's get back to the early years because the musician part comes in later. Connie and Mike loved their son, Dave, but they eventually got divorced in 1975. Although divorced, Connie and Mike were still civil with each other, and there wasn't any of the animosity often seen in some divorces. They appeared to co-parent very well. Dave lived primarily with Connie, but stayed with his dad some days of the week. Connie was a dedicated mother and would read to Dave every night, even as he got older. Dave was described... Dave has described it as a time that they could come together and spend time sharing in the same stories. So even when he was like 10, 11, 12 years old, when he could obviously read on his own, she would still, you know, read him a chapter out of the book that they were completing together. And he, I got the, some of this information in his side of the story from a documentary that I watched called The Morning Sun, which I recommend. It's a really good uh, documentary. But he talked about their life together. The two were very close. Connie's house was a popular hangout for Dave and his friends. Everyone just loved Connie. She had a great energy and enjoyed spending time with her close friends, including her, her best friend, Susan Jory. Sue and Connie had been friends for years. Dave actually thought of Sue as his aunt and Sue's family as his own. In 1980, Connie met and started dating a man named a man named John Riccardi, who went by the name Dean, which his name, I've seen like his first, middle and last name. And I don't know where Dean came from, but he went by Dean. The couple did not technically live together, but Dean was at Connie's apartment most of the time. Dean was described as a muscular guy who was proud of his looks and physique. Dave and Dean forged a friendship, but the relationship between Connie and Dean became rocky after a couple of years. Only two years after meeting, they started going through frequent breakups and reconciliations. But only a few months of the on-again, off-again cycle, Connie called it quits for good in January of 1983. Dean was not the kind of man to take the breakup well, and he started stalking Connie because, you know, if he can't have her, he doesn't want anybody else to have her. I mean, God forbid. Yeah, real peach of a guy. He often showed up uninvited and unannounced wherever Connie was, including at her ex-husband's house, at Mike's house. He followed her to her gym and made repeated hang-up phone calls at all hours of the day. He started calling her friends, telling them how upset he was about their breakup, because that's really going to make a girl want to take you back. You're stalking her and harassing her by phone and then harassing her friends as well. Dean fancied himself a burglar and once said no locks could keep him out. In early January 1983, Connie met with a potential employer named George at a restaurant. 
Dean had followed her to the location and watched the meeting. The following morning, he called George at his hotel demanding to know about the meeting. He didn't know that this was like a business thing. He just assumed that there was something going on. George explained that there was no romantic connection, but Dean threatened to break Connie's knees if they didn't stop seeing each other. Not, I'm going to break your knees if you don't leave my girl alone. If you don't leave my girl alone, I'm going to break her. Nice. Real peach of a guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dean called a second time with George's home address in Connecticut and flight information. So he, he calls George at his hotel and is like, I know where you live. You're from Connecticut. Um, George thinks that, that uh, Dean had broken into his rental car because that information, his flight information, his home address, all of the stuff that Dean was saying he knew about him was on the rental car information in his rental car. A couple of weeks later, one of Connie's friends said that Dean broke into Connie's house, forced himself on her, and confined her to the bed. So he forced he forced her to sleep with him that night, essentially raped her, um, and like wouldn't let her get out of the bed. Like he held on to her and wouldn't let her leave for the night. Mm-hmm. On another morning, Connie's car wouldn't start, and Dean claimed that he had tampered with the wires. At the end of January, Connie had the locks to her apartment changed because she was tired of him getting in her stuff. But remember, he says, no locks can keep me out. So not long after getting the locks changed, Connie agreed to meet Dean at a public location to try and get his behavior stopped. She figured a public location, better chances that he's not going to do anything shitty to her. Unfortunately, Dean had a different plan in mind. And using a weapon, he forced Connie to leave with him. She convinced him to rent a hotel close by, thinking it would be safer to be in the city rather than going God knows where for God knows how long. He kept her in a hotel room for the weekend. He did allow her to call family and friends, and um, they described her conversations as sounding nervous um, and that she was upset. After a couple of days, he allowed Connie to leave. Not long after this incident, Connie was at a restaurant with Sue and another friend when Dean showed up. He sat down at the table and stared at Connie for several minutes. When he left, he mimicked a gun with his fingers, pointed it at Connie, and then acted as if he were shooting her. And then he left the restaurant. Jesus. Yeah. All of this, he's just like showing up wherever she is, which back in the 80s probably took a fair amount of work because it's not like you had cell phones and you were, you know, sharing your location with somebody and they, you know, so he must have really made an effort to find out where the fuck she was. A few days after this occurred, Connie noticed the sliding glass door on the balcony of her bedroom was not working properly. She asked her neighbor for help, who discovered the latch had been damaged. It had been nearly sawed through, which could only have been done from inside the bedroom. So somebody was in her house and sawed through the sliding door latch. It's not good. No, it's (laughs) terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. 
so scary. Not long after this, Dave was homesick from school when he heard a strange noise coming from the balcony outside of Connie's bedroom. He looked out the window to find Dean had crawled up onto the second story balcony. So apparently Spider-Man too. Uh, he was prying hmm. open the glass door and like taking it off its tracks. Oh, yeah. I don't know how you do that, but apparently that's what he did. Um, hmm. Scared and not sure what to do, Dave hid for a moment, then decided to call out, pretending not to know that Dean had broken in. Because he thought, I mean, he knew it was Dean. He knew that, you know, Dean was doing something shady, but he was scared because he didn't know how Dean was going to act about him knowing that he was breaking in. So his I'm first thought up was... on that motherfucker like a ninja, hitting him with ninja stars and yeah. shit. That he was 15. Not... <sighs> Still, yeah. that... Yeah. I'm going to scare the fuck out of him for scaring me. Right. So he wasn't sure what to do, so he called out, you know, like, Mom, Dean, is somebody here? Um, when Dean responded, Dave told him that he'd heard something, acted like he didn't know that it was Dean breaking in. Initially, uh -huh. Dean acted concerned, showed him, oh, no, no, everything's fine. You know, I don't see the doors. Fine. No, nothing's happening. And then Dean pulled a weapon on him. He claimed um, that Dean claimed that he was upset about the breakup and planned to kill himself, but he wanted to confront Connie first. He then forced Dave into the bathroom where he handcuffed him to the toilet. Pretty soon, Connie came home and a loud argument between Dean and Connie occurred. At one point, Dave heard someone get slapped. I don't know who, but Dean returned to the bathroom emotionally upset and crying. He uncuffed Dave and asked him not to tell Connie what he had done. Dean then left the apartment without any further problems that day. Fearing for her safety, Connie went out of town the, next, the last weekend of February. Returning home, she discovered that the alarm in her apartment had been disabled. She wanted to gather some things and take Dave to Mike's house, where she thought they could stay for a while. What she didn't know was that Dean was actually in the house, hiding in a closet, when they went to pick up their stuff. They... The, that all information only came out after the fact. According to How a mutual is friend, breaking in so much. He uh, actually, oh. he's a burglar by trade. So that day, Dean told a mutual friend that he had broken in through the skylight. I would have made that shit look like Fort Knox. Like if if yeah. there's repeated break-ins, there'd be. I'd, I might hire security. Fuck it. I don't, yeah. I yeah. That's crazy. I, I think, you know, I mean, I've never been in this situation, but I think that a lot of people who are in situations like this think that, um, well, they're not going to go that far. They're not going to go to that extreme. You know, they're just fucking with me or, you know, maybe it'll get better if I talk to them. But it often doesn't. So, no. 
On March 1st, Connie contacted an attorney to discuss getting a restraining order against Dean. The following day, Connie was again at a restaurant with friends when Dean showed up. The two went to a separate table where Dean admitted to breaking into Connie's house. He had a letter that Connie had written to him, but she had never mailed. He claimed that until reading that letter, he didn't believe that she truly cared about him, but upon reading it, realized that she had. He then said he would stop bothering her. You know, oh, I now know that you love me because I read the letter that you didn't send me that I only got because I broke into your house because I'm a creepy asshole. And now I know you love me. So, okay, I guess I'll leave you alone because, you know, I know that you love me. It just doesn't, it's the, the doesn't make any sense. thought process. No, it doesn't make any fucking sense at all. He said he would stop bothering her, but, well, I'm telling you a brutal story. So I think you can put two and two together and figure out what happens. Right. One of Connie's friends noticed that Dean didn't look well that day that he accosted them at the restaurant. And she suggested that he check himself into a hospital, which he laughed about as he was leaving the restaurant. Believing Dean when he said he would leave her alone, Connie decided to return home, but she left Dave at his dad's house. In the evening of March 3rd, 1983, Dean had dinner with an ex-girlfriend where he talked about his relationship with Connie. Dean showed her Connie's letter that described her fear of him. So that letter that he said finally you know, showed him that she loved him, was also describing how she was terrified every time she left her house. She was afraid that he was going to show up everywhere she went, that her car wasn't going to work, that he was going to have tampered with it, that he was going to do all of these things. Um, So he's telling his ex-girlfriend about it. Upon leaving the dinner, Dean convinced his ex to call Connie's home. But when no one answered, he appeared to get angry. His ex believed that she saw a gun in his vehicle when he left. Minutes after leaving the restaurant, Dean broke into Connie's home with a firearm. Connie was at home with her friend, Sue. Dean shot Connie twice and placed her body partially in a linen closet. So, like, he put her upper body in, but her legs were sticking out the door. And he put a pillow over her face. He also shot her friend, Sue, and dragged her body from Dave's room into Connie's. Dean left the apartment, taking Connie's vehicle. He fled the area, leaving behind his own vehicles, his apartment, and several guns. A couple of weeks later, an arrest warrant was issued, but Dean was nowhere to be found. Eventually, the FBI was contacted, and Dean was placed on the FBI's most wanted list. The story was even featured on TV's show, um, America's Most Wanted. So he was, he made it onto the TV, probably not in the way he was hoping to. The FBI in charge, uh, FBI agent in charge of the case believed that Dean was so vain because everybody talked about how he was like all about his body and, you know, he was pretty, you know, into himself. So the FBI agent was like, this guy is probably seen a plastic surgeon. Hmm. So their best solution was to start contacting plastic surgeons and go, hey, have you seen this guy? And, you know, descriptions of him and his name and all of that. And that angle is what finally paid off. They learned that Dean had, in fact, surgically changed his appearance. It took eight years, and in January of 1991, Dean was finally apprehended. He was living in Houston, Texas, with his primary source of income 
being burglary. So he was breaking. Apparently, he must have been pretty good, and he didn't just use it to stalk his ex-girlfriend. He had numerous aliases and was a suspect in over 100 burglaries. Hmm. In April 1991, Dean attempted an escape while attending a court hearing. He kicked out a 10th floor window, climbed out onto a ledge where he stayed for 12 hours until he was coaxed back inside. I don't know what you think is going to happen when you climb out onto it. Yeah, he like he kicked out the window and climbed out onto a ledge. What are you going to do from there? My foot. I mean, he's 10 stories up. Does he think he can fly? It's got a P like I yeah. don't understand what his thought processes was. I t- no, this guy ugh. Ultimately he stood trial for the murder, for the double homicide, and he was convicted. Initially he was sentenced to death, which was overturned and changed to a life sentence. In the documentary Morning Sun, Dave discovers the terrible events of his mother's murder. The night that he found out she had been killed was the first time he used drugs. Specifically, he smoked marijuana that night. He said in the documentary that that was the first time he realized that drugs could help with pain. He ended up becoming a heavy drug user fairly quickly, using heroin on a regular basis. He had significant depression and considered suicide. He was hospitalized numerous times for his addiction, and in the movie even stated that he had technically died more than once due to his drug use. In 1986, three years after Connie's murder, Dave joined the band Jane's Addiction as the lead guitarist. Do you, are you familiar with Jane's Addiction? Mm-hmm. Mm. You, I think you could probably like their music. It's a little bit more punk than rock, but... Some of it's good. It's like, a little, mm, it's not, it's not my cup of tea. I liked a couple of their songs, but um, he was in that band until they broke up in 1991. The next band he joined, I Know You Like, and then 1993, he joined the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he was a band oh. member there until 1998. Oh, he he's not a OG one. I don't think he was OG, but I mean, he was there in the late nineties. So, um, his drug addiction continued to be problematic for years. He continues playing music and he's been involved in solo projects as well as working with other bands and musical artists, including Janet Jackson, Nine Inch Nails, Guns N' Roses, just to name a few. Um, he was also on like some TV shows about music. There was one back in, gosh, I want to say it was the early 2000s where um, potential musicians wanted to join a band. There were two different shows. And so it was kind of like the voice kind of, but it, they were looking for like a specific band member. Um, and the, the people judging were the band. So they got to pick who they wanted from. And it was, I loved that show. Dad and I watched that show all the time. It was really good. I wish I wrote it down, but I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Mm. It was, it was a pretty good show, but he's been on TV shows and stuff too. Usually music related. Um, To have a musical career for as long as he had, as he had had or 
he's had because he's still alive. Um, it shows that he is a great musician. Going back to my question at the beginning of the story, which was how far reaching does a murder go? It clearly affected Dave and his personal life, surely affected his professional career. I mean, everybody talks yeah. about how a lot of rock musicians are, a lot of musicians in general are drug addicts and he definitely Rubble. was a drug addict. Yeah. Um, some might wonder what kind of person Dave would be if his mother hadn't been murdered. You know, I mean, he, would he have still made it to being this huge, long lasting musician? Would he have gotten involved in the drugs that he did eventually because of music and exposure? And I mean, it's, there's no way to tell, but the, you know, in general, this question applies to all family of murder victims. It's not just, you know, the thing that happened to the victim, but it happens to their family too. So it happened to, you know, live out the tragedy in front of everybody, in front of the world, because he ended up being a, you know, famous musician. So that is my story. Super interesting. It's cool to hear that he yeah. was in like Red Hot Chili Peppers and stuff. And like, yeah, I had no idea. Right. I I didn't think that I don't ever remember hearing you talk about any Jane's Addiction songs. You'll have to go back and listen to some now. But um, yeah. I know you're a Chili Pepper fan, so. Do you Another have a chaser. chaser for us? Oh, no, oh, I said it first. I said it first. No, you go first. <laughs> okay. So my chaser today is, I have I know I've mentioned it in previous chasers, the author Harlan Coben. He is an amazing author that I love pretty much everything that he's ever put out. I love all of his books. I've read them or listened to them at least once. Um, but he's got a series called, um, the main actor or the main character is Myron Bolitar, but he hasn't had a Bolitar book out in years. I can't remember the last time a Bolitar book came out. It's been a long time. And I just, um, fairly recently heard that a new Mar Myron Bolitar book is coming out in May of this year. And I am so excited because <laughs> I, it's one of those series that I just love every single character, every single line in it. It's just the writing is so great. The dialogue between the characters is amazing. I'm just super excited to get to have another book. <laughs> nice. Sounds yeah. good. So what's your chaser today? My Chaser is a song recommendation. Oh. It's Nothing Burns Like the Cold by... I'm going to mess this name up because I don't know who this artist is. I just know the feature. It's featuring Vince Staple, who's a rapper that I like. And the song is by Snow Allegra, I think. 
S-N-O-H-A-A-L-E-G-R-A. But it's like a mix between James Bond, hip-hop, and like smooth jazz almost. It's like super, super interesting, and I can't stop listening to it. I've been listening to that multiple times every day. (laughs) How jazzy is it? Because... I'm pretty sure it's we have talked in the past about how we both hate jazz. How jazzy. It sounds like a James Bond song. Here, you should listen to a little bit of it. Oh. I don't know that I'll be able to hear it very I don't know well. If you can you hear it? Uh-uh. Oh. I, I wrote it down, though, so I'm going to go listen to it after we're done recording yeah, and... I'll decide if it's too jazzy for me because I just freaking hate jazz so much. It's more Sorry James to all Bond the jazz fans out there. Slash, yeah, okay. it, it's super interesting. There's a few songs that are mildly jazzy that I like. Can't think of them off the top of my head, but I don't hate mm. all jazz, just most jazz. <laughs> me too. I, I like a couple jazz songs, yeah. but most of the songs I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah. But I think that just about brings us to the end of our podcast today. It I does enjoyed today. hearing that. Thanks to interesting story. Yeah. I thought it was fun to Super find a, a celebrity. I haven't heard of it know, before. Kind of story that that involved the celebrity, but it wasn't the celebrity that was doing the true crime. Because there's yeah. lots of those out there. It's you gross. know, they crash their car. They do something bad, you know, not that I want anybody to be a victim, but it's interesting Mm -hmm. to hear, you know, just that side of it. So true. Thanks everyone for listening and enjoying our podcast with us. Love you, mom. Love you, bud. Bye. Bye. Hey friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.